Welcome to the Today is the Day podcast, where we take a deep dive into popular health topics and empower you to make informed, evidence-based decisions. We offer practical tools and strategies so you can easily integrate what you learn into your everyday habits. As it's our first episode back after a break, we thought, hey, why ease in gently when we can dive right back in tackling one of the most addictive substances on the planet? Let's talk sugar. We'll be covering the different names for sugar and where it hides, the staggering amount of sugar we're unknowingly consuming each year, the impact sugar has on various functions of the body, how to best kick the habit, and our favorite sweet recipes that have no added sugar. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for season three of the Today is the Day podcast. We are thrilled to be back behind the mic. Since we left off, a lot has changed in the world. More of us are now aware of the necessity for self-responsibility when it comes to our health. We're now more aware of how we can optimally support our immune system, and a whole lot more people are taking to their kitchens, doing a lot of cooking from scratch. Josh and I continue to cheer on your efforts. Every little one counts. If you've been positively impacted by something you've learned on this show, please head over to your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. It helps more people find us. And before we go any further, allow us to introduce ourselves in the event that you are brand new around here. I'm Megan Telpner, a nutritionist, two-time best-selling author, and founder of the Academy of Culinary Nutrition. And joining me as always is the sweetness in my life, Josh Gatalis. Hi, everyone. I'm a clinical nutritionist and functional medicine practitioner with a clinic in downtown Toronto. I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Certification Program and an instructor with the Academy of Culinary Nutrition. Josh and I work to continuously raise our set point when it comes to our health. And one of the last and hardest areas to shake was our love of our favorite sweets. Sugar is mighty addictive. For me, it was Reese's Pieces, O'Henry chocolate bars, and gummy candies. What was your sweet weakness, Josh? Well, as far as candy bars go, I was a big fan of crunchy. Really? You know, know, the one with the malted toffee stuff inside? Yeah, they always got caught in your teeth. And, you know, I always did and still love a good cookie. You do love a good cookie. He has what I call a tea ceremony whenever he's treating himself to a cookie. It's like, you want a cookie, but he has to like boil the water, steep his tea for exactly three minutes, sit down. It's a whole production. (laughs) It's an essential and beautiful marriage. (laughs) Well, sugar is a really interesting topic when it comes to nutrition, because so often we think we're eating well by buying organic and shopping at the health food stores but we might still be falling prey to a sweet tooth. Sugar is sugar, so let's dive in. Why don't you get us started on this, Josh? Tell me, what is this thing we call sugar? Well, most people understand that sugar is this soluble carbohydrate that we can add to processed foods. It's often added to ultra-processed foods and candy bars, and we sometimes add it to tea and coffee and even recipes and some things that we might even think are healthy as well. What's interesting is that when you start looking at sugar, and I'm about to share some names of sugar, when you start looking at crackers, breads, processed meat slices, salad dressings, all these foods we think of as savory, we're going to start to see sugar under various names on those ingredient lists. Now, sugar comes 
in different forms under different names. And we might recognize high fructose corn syrup as a form of sugar, the basics of glucose, fructose, lactose, which is a sugar from milk. Then we start to see sugars we think of as healthy sugar, one being brown sugar, which if you didn't know, is actually just white sugar with some molasses added in because we somehow think that when food is brown, it's magically healthier for us. Beet sugar. Now, this is a tricky one because we think of beets being a vegetable, but beets, especially in North America, are grown genetically modified. So what you're actually getting is a genetically modified beet called sugar beets, which have a higher concentration of sugar, and this is a sugar being added into processed foods. Cane sugar is another tricky name on a label, and if you have not yet, listen to our episode on how not to be fooled by the label. But we think of cane sugar as more of a whole food. We've seen it grown if we've ever traveled in parts of the Caribbean. And that's just a fancy name for sugar. Honey, maple syrup, turbinado, agave, date sugar. These are sugars that are the sweethearts, if you will, of the health food industry. So we'll see these in organic cookies, in elixirs. Sometimes people add even honey right into their smoothies to have a little bit of a sweeter taste. And what you'll find on food labels when you start looking at them is that you won't just see one name for sugar. Like you won't just see cane sugar on a label, but you might start to see different sugars named in different ways, using all these different words for it so that one ingredient could have four or five different sources of sugar. And ultimately, sugar is sugar. So no matter what form it takes, really what we want to do is just consume less of it and resensitize our taste buds so that we actually need less sweeteners to taste that sweetness. I remember as a kid, I used to dip strawberries into sugar because I was eating so much sugar that a straight up fruit, high in naturally occurring sugar like fructose, just didn't even taste sweet enough. Yes. And I remember in our home, we actually used to use sugar on top of grapefruits. Oh, my grandmother did that one. And we would also add sugar to our cereal, right? right? So we would buy the less sugary cereals because we thought it was healthier. And then we would add sugar to it. And then at the end of your bowl of cereal, there was this sugary milk, which was absolutely delicious. The thought of it right now, actually like, eh, no, I just made a burr face. And then it can't see me. (laughs) (laughs) And that's interesting because these food companies are trying to make us addicted to these substances. You know, evolutionarily speaking, we never had access to this amount of carbohydrate, and specifically in our discussion, sugar. And of course, when we tasted something back in our hunting and gathering days, and it tasted sweet, we would want more and more of it to really load up on the calories. In fact, you know, in 1820, where we have records that go that far back, the consumption of sugar per person was 20 pounds. Now, that still seems like a lot when you think about it. That's per year. Right. Oh, well then. Yeah. Now, in 2000 and even, you know, 2020, people are consuming about their own body weight in sugar now, you know, 120 to 150 pounds of sugar per year. And that's pretty easy to do. That's remarkable. Now think for a moment of your entire body mass as a heap (laughs) of sugar, like a pyramid of white sugar. Yeah. Or even, you know, like back in the day, sugar used to come in like blocks right? It it wasn't granulated. (laughs) Imagine you got delivered like a body's worth of sugar, you know, in your front door at the beginning of every year. You just start picking away at it with a little teaspoon, one teaspoon at a time. You consume that sugar. Let's put a little toe in my tea today. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) And he he takes it to a very strange level. So you have an interesting statistic you want to share about 
the impact this is having. And let's talk about kids for a moment. Well, this absolutely blew my mind when I heard it. So type 2 diabetes used to be called adult onset diabetes. Why? Because kids wouldn't get it, right? It would take a good 20, 30 years to really affect our cells in such a way that they became insulin resistive and eventual a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. But juvenile diabetes has skyrocketed. Now, if we look back to 1980, there were zero cases of type 2 diabetes in children. Can I repeat that? In 1980, no children had type 2 diabetes. It didn't exist. That's correct. And that's why it was called adult onset diabetes. Then in 2010, the numbers were up to 57,636. And this is from? This is from the 2014 documentary, Fed Up. That's where I got the stat. Because when I was watching this movie, which is all about sugar, it just blew my mind and I had to write that one down. And I often think about this when, you know, we have an ice cream shop around the corner from our house and we'll see adults with their two scoops of ice cream and we'll see kids with that same two scoops of ice cream. However, an adult could be three to five times the body mass of that child. So the volume of sugar is that much more concentrated. And mostly I feel sympathy for the parent because they're about to deal with a major meltdown when that sugar crash happens. Absolutely. And I love that image because if you think about it in your head and multiplied what that child has to the adult size based yeah. on their body weight, it would be massive. Yeah. Right? Like the adult would be consuming an ice cream cone with like eight... Eight scoops food. of ice cream on there. It's like those exhibition style yeah. summer ridiculous. Imagine how you would feel after that. Not so good. So a couple years ago, I started sort of experiencing some symptoms. Our son was maybe one and a half, almost two at the time. And I knew I needed to make some changes. And little things had crept back into my diet. And what I noticed was that I was craving sweets all the time. And I wanted to change the way I felt. And at that moment, I decided to eliminate sugar. And I did my own seven-day no-sugar challenge, which was tricky at the time. And I would replace sweeteners with some natural sweeteners and do some different things. But ultimately, I went cold turkey, no sugar. And then I started feeling better. I felt really bad. And then I started feeling better. And then I decided to do another week. And then another week. And another week. And another week. And What's 52 times two? <laughs> it's now been two years that I've eliminated added sugar from my diet. That includes honey, maple syrup. I'll occasionally have small amounts in something, but I no longer crave any type of baked goods or sweets. And it's changed my relationship with sugar. And it's also changed my taste buds because now minuscule amounts of sweetener in something are explosive to me. It's overwhelming. So it's really incredible how we can actually retrain our taste buds once we become aware of how reliant we've become on sugar. And what I've also noticed is that I taste everything more acutely. I can taste enhanced flavors in different foods and vegetables and taste sweetness and things where I never did before. Right. And we're born with a palate that's really not even used to that intense flavor. You know, with our son, we've never really given him sugar of any sort. The sweetest thing we give him, the odd time, is a dried fruit. Yeah. When he gets a prune, it's like a special treat in his life. He gets very excited 
his eyes get very wide and he gets this little smirk on his face. Yeah. And that could be trained and retrained. So if you're listening to this and maybe you have kids or even just for yourself and you find that you've desensitized to the sweet taste, you can resensitize pretty easily by just taking the stuff out. Now, one of the things that's so tricky about sugar is how it stimulates reward centers in the brain, which is part of what makes it so addictive. Can you talk a little bit about sugar's journey in the body and that reaction that happens? Well, when it hits our taste buds, we actually release certain chemicals like serotonin, which makes us feel good Mm -hmm. right away. I mean, that's a very quick and effective way to make us feel good. Right. Right. And that's why sometimes Megan and I call it a drug or like a drug because of its quick acting effects on our neurotransmitters and how we feel. In addition, it can affect and make uh, our opiate receptors light up in our brain, which is really interesting. In fact, there's been studies where they have two adults come into a room with a baby and one adult has a little sugar solution and the other adult doesn't. And they both go up to the baby really close in the face and one gives them the sugar solution, then they leave the room and then they come back and they do that a couple of times. And what they find is after they've done that, the baby only pays attention to the adult that gave them the sugar solution. So it socializes them to a place where they're given a reward. Right. And we see this in parenting a lot too, where good behavior is rewarded with a sweet treat or celebrations are honored by cake and cookies and other forms of sugar. And so it becomes this association of good things, of good behavior, of time with family, of celebration, of different types of things that, again, continue to stimulate that reward center. And so we crave those psychological feelings, those physical and emotional feelings that come from sugar consumption, which is part of what makes it such a tricky thing. And like Josh said, you can actually make your child love you more, or so it seems, before they're actually conscious of their behaviors. But you can increase those feelings of need and want by giving your child sugar. Now, don't go doing this so that you can become like the favorite parent. That would be not very good long term. Well, you know, my grandmother after we had dinner, didn't say, oh, Josh, I baked you a beautiful broccoli casserole. <laughs> and, you know, hand that to me. You know, she I still remember she gave us these massive coffee crisps. I mm-hmm. mean, if anyone remembers coffee crisp, it was just the size of the bar was bigger than any other chocolate bar out there. Josh, I think they still make coffee crisp. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those that stood the test of time, I guess. It was one of those. My grandfather, too, he ran this little hotel in, in Winnipeg. And when we'd go visit him at his hotel, he would give us a candy bar. And even staying at my grandmother's house, she would buy junk cereal. We were never allowed in our homes. And we would, with my cousins, sort through a box of Lucky Charms, first eating the cereal part and saving all the marshmallows and meticulously divide them up. And then I would eat them all. My brother would save all his. And that was sort of our our ritual. But like to have these rituals and memories associated with sugar shows you what a strong emotional connection we have through our taste buds. Mm -hmm. And we could still do a lot of that with delicious foods, even healthy desserts. I know Megan has a recipe or two in a couple of her books on healthy desserts. So we don't have to totally discount this food and love connection because it is nice and it does kind of bring us back home, but we want to do it in a healthy and sustainable way. When we consume too much of this stuff, and we've already looked at a couple stats, 
it has multiple effects on our body in negative ways. This is well established in the research. So firstly, and I think this is highly applicable to what's going on today, is that sugar can suppress the immune system. About 100 grams of various sweeteners, there was a study carried out looking at glucose, fructose, sucrose, orange juice, and honey. Now, before you get all upset because I mentioned honey, these were pretty large doses. We're talking about 100 grams, which would be like over a quarter cup of honey at one time. But these foods depress the immune system for up to five hours. So think about someone who wakes up in the morning and has their sugary cereal with their skim milk, which is basically just more sugar. They've depressed their immune system to lunchtime. And then at lunchtime, they have a pop with whatever processed foods that's loaded with sugar, and they've depressed it for another five hours. And then at dinner, they have their dinner and then a dessert, and they've depressed it for another five hours. That's 15 hours out of a 24-hour period. So what's that actually going to do to the immune system? It's going to cause that suppressive effect and make us a lot more susceptible to all sorts of pathogens and even you know, things within the body like cancer. So Josh... Does sugar consumption actually increase your risk of cancer? Before we go on, I just want to point something out about this sugar and the immune system because there's been so much talk about immune health of late, given what's going on in the world. So what you're saying is that one of the most effective or or straightforward ways to support the immune health is actually just to stop suppressing it with consumption of sugar. So it's not even these things that we need to bring into our life and these things we have to actively do, but simply eliminating something can have a direct response on how our immune system and obviously other functions of the body will work and can optimize that functioning. So if you're concerned about health and well-being, eliminating or at the very least reducing your sugar dramatically and knowing what it does when you do consume it can have dramatic implications. That's such a great point, Megan. I love that because with functional nutrition, we're always thinking about two things. What do we have to take out? Yeah. And what do we have to put in? Yeah. Right? So I've spoken about this before, where we have these things like that are like slivers. Right. And when you get a sliver, you don't put a Band-Aid over it. You don't take painkillers. You got to take that sliver out for the healing to happen. And sugar can be a sliver right. for you. So we got to take that out first, and then we can bring in the good stuff. Let's take a break to meet one of our amazing change-making graduates, Richard Blackwood. Richard is a community instigator, in his words, creator of dope things, cooking from scratch enthusiast, and avid plant parent. He currently works for Impact Kitchen here in Toronto as a restaurant manager and community outreach and diversity coordinator. Here is Richard to tell you more. Hi, my name is Richard Blackwood, and I'm a graduate from the 2015 class and I reside in Toronto. It's been an amazing experience um, after I graduated in regards to how I use my skills and knowledge. And that also was inspirational for me personally on my own cooking journey and health journey, but in regards to how I inspire my community. The inspiration for cooking from scratch was heightened after taking the program. I leave no stone unturned when it comes from 
making something right from the start, from honey mustard dressing to curries to everything in between. If you're coming over for dinner, be a little warned that you should fill up a little bit because I, I have a tendency of going in and being very creative. Recently, I'm spending a lot of time challenging myself to create um, meals using the good food box from Foodshare. Every box is different which makes using my knowledge exciting and rewarding. I gave myself a little tagline. I call myself the cooking from scratch enthusiast. (laughs) And now I'm sharing these meal ideas with uh, my sister's coworkers, which was surprising, but also um, inspiring. And I I can't wait to to see how they like um, what I come up with. Like I said, um, getting my community involved was something that blossomed after taking this program and it's been quite a ride. And over the last few years, I've been able to actually do that. My current job at Impact Kitchen has provided the platform to host a brunch program for families where we share nutritious meals and recipes like gluten-free pancakes. I had the honor not too long ago also to do a workshop for some wonderful young moms who attended the Regent Park Child and Family Center. And that was a wonderful experience. Um, it's like one of my first um, workshops and it was great, I guess, to facilitate, to be like a, a teacher. And um, the moms and their kids were wonderful. And we even experienced, you know, we did a, like a butternut squash soup. And to the surprise of many, their kids like love the soup. So just to engage like that was wonderful. And I, I took it to heart. Over the summer, while we were um, sheltered in place, I had the opportunity to facilitate an amazing roundtable discussion virtually on maximizing your pantry, mindful shopping and eating and affordable ways to eat for the University of Toronto Heart House. And again, the sharing and this talking on how we can like use what we have in our pantry, especially in these times and maximizing it and being creative and still, you know, bring some nutrients and health to our, not also our souls, but our body was, was an amazing experience. Richard has an amazingly calm energy and his approach with culinary nutrition and bringing this knowledge to communities who might not otherwise access it has been inspiring for all of us. He is a force in our Toronto community. Learn more about what he's working on at culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast. Just click on this episode. In a time when it can be easy to feel helpless to what's going on around us, Richard is an amazing example of how we can take our passion and knowledge of culinary nutrition and use it to elevate change. If you are ready to learn more about the power of food and how it can transform lives, join us for the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program. You can learn more at culinarynutrition.com forward slash program. Now let's return to this week's episode. So before I interrupted you, you were about to talk about sugar and cancer. Do you want to go into that a little more detail? Absolutely. Well, we have quite a bit of evidence that sugar increases the risk of various cancers, colon cancer, prostate cancer, ovarian cancer, breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, gastric cancer, biliary cancer. In fact, there was a study carried out looking at 35,000 U.S. residents, and it found that sucrose consumption was highly linked to colon cancer. So that was one study. There's been many other studies. There was one that looked at 8,000 men and its relationship to prostate cancer and found that refined carbohydrates actually increase risk and also other cancers related to uh, hormones. So the Canadian Cancer Society estimates that on average, over 200 people per day in Canada are dying of cancer. And the Canadian Cancer Foundation, association, I don't remember what it's called, society maybe, but they also say that 
up to 90% of cancers are preventable through diet and lifestyle. So we've now learned that sugar directly contributes to an increased risk in cancers, various kinds, and also suppresses the immune system. So it seems to me that it's got to go. Right. And most people know that sugar isn't good for you. Right. But I think it's the understanding of why and the how, which we're trying to outline here today, that makes it real for you and makes you a lot more prone to actually follow a sugar-free diet. Right. One other issue that's chronic, and we've done a full episode on can you reverse or cure inflammation? What, how, what role does sugar play? And we, we do talk about it in that episode as well. But what role does sugar play in inflammation? Because so many people, especially as we get older, and you and I joke now that I'm in my 40s and you're knocking at the door about our, our creaky joints. And as you get older, like we're pretty healthy and active, but you do start to feel aches and pains a little bit more in the body and you are more prone to inflammation. What role does sugar play in that process? Well, the hormone in question here that runs a thread through a lot of what we're talking about is insulin. Right. So we talked about type 2 diabetes. Insulin obviously plays a massive role there. But when we eat sugar and even refined carbohydrates... We spike our blood sugar, and that creates a massive release of insulin. And insulin has all of these effects. So insulin actually promotes pro-inflammatory pathways. It promotes the growth of cancer, and it decreases the sensitization over time of our cells to insulin. It's like having a solicitor knock on your door all the time, mm -hmm. and insulin gets sugar into the cell. So with these multitude of effects it can affect many different systems in many different ways, which is why we're discussing so many different negative consequences of eating this way. Right. So just to clarify, if we're looking to support optimal immune health, reduce inflammation in the body, and lower our risk of cancer, one change we could consider in our life is to ditch the sugar. This is what I like to call a force multiplier. Right. It's like, you know, people are always looking for those hacks or those little things or that supplement or that little superfood that can make them healthier. But we have to address the fundamentals. And there's really big things that can make a massive difference. And this is one of them. Let's talk then about how we can eliminate sugar from the diet. There's basically one option. Get rid of it. I mean, I, I will get into some transition tips, but ultimately... Once you understand the impact it has and use that as your motivation to eliminate it, suddenly those sweet things don't taste quite so sweet anymore. And what we also have to understand is that it is an addictive substance. So it does trigger those neurotransmitters. And there will be withdrawal symptoms that are a little bit uncomfortable. You can feel fatigued, you can feel headachy, you can feel cranky. And the tricky part is, like with any addictive substance, you tend to feel better as soon as you consume some of it. And that's why I recommend cold turkey as the best way to go to get over some of that discomfort as quickly as possible. I, of course, have a seven-day no-sugar challenge that can guide you through it with two seven-day meal plans. Um, and we can post a link on our show notes page over at culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast. Just choose this episode and you'll see the link to that. Ultimately, what happens when we cut it cold turkey is that we start to resensitize our taste buds to the taste of sweet. So we're no longer at the upper limit that the human body can handle, which has been heavily tested and experimented with in labs. You can read about this in the book, Salt, Sugar, Fat, where they actually discuss this in detail. 
And then what happens is you start to crave something sweet and you have that strawberry not being dipped in sugar, or you have that grapefruit or a banana, which we call custard sticks, or a slice of apple. And you can taste, my mouth is watering as I'm talking about these. (laughs) You taste that juicy, naturally occurring sweetness. It's in a healthful balance, you know, combined with fiber and loads of phytonutrients. And that satisfies that sweet craving. And for now, if you're still on the sugar train, you just got to trust me on this, but it does happen. And part of that is being consistent with your commitment. And I think a lot of people know this, but maybe don't put in the effort or don't do it because they don't fully understand the implications. And hopefully with this episode, it helps drill some of those things home. So you actually know, you know, not eating this is going to have an impact on my present and long-term health. I love that you just mentioned present and long-term because you can feel the effects of sugar in the acute state, right? Like right after you ate it and then you have this sugar high and then you have the sugar crash. But also a lot of what we're talking about too is when you do it chronically over a long period of time, it could have much deeper and stronger implications for you. Right. And I think that's also why I love this, why Mark Hyman calls it a recreational food. You know, because there's the odd time you indulge, it's not going to make a massive difference. If you have, you know, a piece of cake once a year for your birthday or a few times for, you know, friends and family, it's not going to kill you. It's not going to make a big difference. It's the repetitive exposure to these things when sugar has infiltrated many different parts of your food, of your diet, your sauces, your processed foods, the things that you eat when you go out. So there are a lot of awesome replacements and kind of gateway sweeteners that I would like this culinary nutritionist to uh, take the mic on that one. Well, thank you. Thank you. And what I was just going to say is that about the taste changing, because my mom, when we go there for dinner, makes what we call Amma's honey cake, the recipes in the Undiet cookbook. And it used to be like my favorite thing. That was like my treat at my parents' house. And I stopped eating it. And it's not because it became less delicious. I just had less desire for what I know that that amount of sugar. And it's honey predominantly. I think it's only honey that sweetens that cake. I just know how that makes me feel. And I just don't consume it, especially at nighttime, because it will affect my sleep. And what's interesting too, in terms of the social implications, is when we go to a party, even our family's party or a friend's party, or we're out somewhere and we choose not to consume that sweet dessert, people are astounded. I know. Like they think that we're exercising this tremendous willpower But the thing is, when you take this stuff out, you actually don't want it anymore. No. It just, your taste buds change. Your brain changes. Yeah. And you don't crave it and you you just don't want to go down that road. There's a lot of zero-calorie sweeteners that have hit the market. And they're often referred to as zero-calorie because they don't have that impact on blood sugar. So there's things that are so hyper-sweet, you need such little amounts of it to actually get that sweet taste. So things like stevia, and there's a stevia leaf as a whole leaf, which you can buy. You can get the powder. So somehow a green leaf turns into a very high concentration sweet white powder. And there's a liquid stevia extract, which is I think is what we mostly have if we ever use it, that seems to have a less metallic taste. I don't like any of them personally. I'd rather not have anything. Xylitol is one that's a little more closer to sugar, I think, in taste. One for one with sugar. Just don't give it to your dog. It's poison for dogs. I also have the very scientific mind in that I don't trust foods that start with X. 
for no other reason that <laughs> there's no food in nature that starts with X. So that's my concern around xylitol. Is that someone's going to write in and say there's some weird tropical fruit or something that starts with an X? I bet oh, you. Oh, I think there actually oh, is. Yeah, the, in, in that fruit book. In Finley's yeah. book, which I've never heard of. <laughs> Monk fruit, which often falls under the brand name of Lakanto, but it's predominantly erythritol in that. And erythritol is a sugar alcohol. So all of these are fair options for transitioning to consuming less sweeteners. So if you're not ready to make your elixir without any sweetener at all, put a drop of stevia in it or a little bit of xylitol. And especially if someone is type 2 diabetic, they'll probably be using these as their sweeteners rather than the other options that will impact blood sugar in greater ways. But ultimately, no matter what your health state is, you want less and less of these. And I really don't recommend consuming things like stevia and xylitol and monk fruit and erythritol on a daily basis. I don't recommend consuming anything on a daily basis, but you know, I'm still not 100% sold on the long-term safety of daily use of these highly concentrated sweeteners. Right. I just don't think we have the data on that, really. No. And then there's the wonderful world of artificial sweeteners. And I'm sure you can predict what Megan and my take is on these. They are just really chemicals made in a lab that make our taste buds think something is sweet. And they've been shown to have some negative consequences. So the sweetener aspartame has been shown to negatively affect the microbiome. We also have the effect of tasting something sweet, but having it not be associated with the correspondent amount of calories. And so the brain is programmed that when it tastes something sweet, it's going to get some of that quick energy. And in the case of aspartame, like sweet and low and equal, I don't know what they're all called. <laughs> they come in little paper packets. You're getting that sweet taste without the calories. So what happens then? Well, it's been well established in the research then that they look at people who are consuming, say, regular Coca-Cola or soda versus diet drinks. And there's no difference in the amount of weight loss or weight gained in these two groups. Because when you taste these things, you're still seeking the calories, even though you tasted the sweetness. You can't beat Mother Nature. That's right, Megan. <laughs> <laughs> Whole food sweeteners. Now, these are the sweeteners of choice from the culinary nutrition perspective because they have both nutrient value and lend that sweet taste. So some of the things I like to use to sweeten foods, baking, desserts, various things, is bananas. So that's a great one. Dates, applesauce, pureed sweet potato or butternut squash, whole fruits should be all the sweetness we need on a day-to-day -day basis. And also dried fruit. So dried fruit is basically a whole fruit with all of the moisture removed from it. And so it has an extra sweet concentration of it. Now, I love baking. And when I cut out sugar, it sort of shifted that for me because sure, I love baking for you, but we don't really give our son anything with added sugar. So it's been really fun to figure out creative ways to bake from a culinary nutrition perspective where... We want to basically increase the nutrient value of every bite in everything we make. And using whole food sweeteners like the ones I mentioned makes for a really creative and fun and delicious experimentation in the kitchen. So some of the things that I love doing, if you have the Undyet Cookbook, there's a recipe in it called the Banana Berry Oat Amazing Muffins. And as we started making these for our son, I got rid of the sugar. I think it calls for 
quarter to a half cup of coconut sugar. I eliminated it completely, just used bananas as a sweetener, and they were plenty sweet enough. Just as a sidebar, Megan, when we make pancakes in our home, we have a recipe that uses bananas in there. Also available on my blog. Yes. And those pancakes are quite sweet as is. We never even use maple syrup on those. We don't. What we love to use on them. Wait, what do you make for them? You, Josh is the pancake man in the house. Yeah, I usually do a wild blueberry compote. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we fry up or, you know, heat up some apples, like yep. baked apple type thing. And sometimes we'll use like a fresh berry. And right. that's plenty sweet. Yes. And our son just gobbles them up. He does. Like a cookie monster. Like think of Cookie Monster when he has those cookies and there's like <laughs> crumbs flying everywhere. That's our son and pancakes. I love using dates as a sweetener and sauces that are being pureed. So making your own ketchups or barbecue sauces, which are condiments that typically have sugar in them. You can actually stew up dates when you're cooking. I mean, assuming you guys all make your own ketchup, but you should because regular ketchup is just sugar and tomato paste. So I do have a recipe for it. You can swap the sugar for a couple dates. But dates are a way that you can stew in two things you're making as purees. Even with our son, when we were introducing foods to him, I would stew like apricots and prunes if he was feeling a little backlogged, but add to it loads of spices. So there's ways to do that. In a smoothie, if you need a little extra sweetener and you want to change it up, say you're doing a smoothie that is, write this down, a little bit of zucchini, a little bit of avocado, your favorite green vegetables like spinach or kale, maybe some cilantro, a little bit of lime, your protein powder of choice, some hemp seeds, maybe some walnuts, and you want to add a sweetener to it that's not a banana, you could add a date or two. So there's different ways to integrate that in. Yeah. On that note too, with smoothies, people use like sweet juices often, like coconut water, right? Which they've been told is healthy and loaded with electrolytes, but that's really just sugar water. Um, Maybe it's a good thing to consume if you're doing high ultra endurance activity, but not really for the average person who's sitting in a chair in front of a computer and also lots of other juices. So Megan and I prefer to use water in our smoothies or maybe a tea, but then sweetening it with these whole foods that she's outlining. Absolutely. Butternut squash is like a little known secret. Butternut squash and sweet potato works great in muffins and breads. It adds some moisture. It helps bind and especially with gluten-free flours and lends some sweetness to those things. Also adding those to stews because a lot of times stews and sauces will call for a little bit of sugar. You can actually just add, again, if it's going to be pureed, you can add that date. But putting butternut squash or sweet potato adds a little bit of sweetness to these things. Applesauce in baking is one of my top tricks, especially with gluten-free baking, because applesauce has that naturally occurring pectin in it. So that helps bind the gluten-free flours. It helps hold on to that moisture and it's sweet. Don't you also use applesauce sometimes to make like jams? I do. I'll use that. So I'll make no sugar added jams that's just basically fruit and applesauce. And then I blend it and it will definitely not be as sweet as something that you would buy in the store. But if you want a little bit more sweetener in a jam, then you can add honey one teaspoon at a time after it's cooked to get the flavor that you're after. And then when you start working with different spices and different foods, you can start to incorporate little bits of sweetness into them that will help balance the overall flavor of the meal. So for example, in Moroccan cooking, they'll use chopped up apricots with like a lamb dish. And you can do this obviously with a vegan version. So there's beautiful ways to start to incorporate sweetness from whole foods 
into meals. And once you start to balance out the flavor of those meals where they're not dominated by high salt, high sodium, or really high sweetener, you start to crave less of both salty and sweet altogether. So finding that balance within your meals, which is something we teach in the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program, becomes a really important part of staving off those sweet cravings. One last thing, hydration. Now, oftentimes when we start craving sweets, it's actually a bit of a low energy function in the body. And we might actually just be thirsty. That takes willpower when you're craving sweets to instead have a giant glass of water. That's a great point, Meg. And you said one last thing, but I actually have one last thing upon your one last thing. Give me your one last thing. Is that we've covered quite a bit here. As we mentioned at the beginning, sugar feels like a drug to a lot of people. It's a hard thing to quit. It's a hard thing to reduce. And there's kind of two things going on here. There's going to be one, the actual physical and lifestyle reduction of the sweetener. But there's also going to be the downstream effect in your body of your cells regaining insulin sensitivity. And that doesn't happen overnight. So it's going to take a little bit of time. There's going to be, I guess you could call it a detox period, but there's going to be a time where your cells are not being bombarded by insulin every single day, you know, that solicitor at the front door. And they're starting to realize, hey, it's a little bit safer to open up the doors more often to sugar. And you're going to probably have less negative symptoms and more positive symptoms and more stable blood sugar. But that is a bit of a process and you just have to stick with it to get to the other side. I have one last thing on your one last thing on my one last thing, which is to what you just said. When I had just gotten off sugar about two months in, we got these blood glucose monitors. And at the time, whenever I had a higher carbohydrate meal, my measures would go off the charts up and then crash and it would take six to eight hours for it to restabilize. We just did it again. So almost two years into this no sugar thing. And what we found is even when we ate the exact same meals, you had more fluctuations this time around than I did. So to what you just said, it took time. But over time, I became less reactive to what I was taking in eating less of it. But it does take that time for your body to reestablish new patterns. For sure, Megan. And also just another thing on your thing for my thing for your thing, (laughs) which I just remembered that I wanted to mention regarding when you kind of started this whole no sugar thing was when we were actually being substantially sleep deprived. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that happens when we're sleep deprived is we crave carbohydrates. Right. So that was one thing I noticed because I've always felt like my sleep is a sacred thing. And I've always tried to get like eight hours. But when we had our kid, that was no longer an option. And that was one of the acute feelings that I remember experiencing and taking note of that, oh my God, I only got three or four hours of sleep last night. Today, I am craving carbs. Yes. Right. So we have another podcast that we did all about sleep. So you also want to listen to that one and combine all these different things that we're talking about to really help keep the body in balance. As we round out our first episode of season three, you might be catching on that it's all connected. If you haven't listened to our first episodes, go all the way back to season one and start from the beginning. We want to thank you so much for joining us today. We have loads of resources and links to help you make this optimally healthy lifestyle effortless in your life and start to reduce or maybe eliminate that sugar. Head over to culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast to get access to all of the additional information. If you're 
feeling inspired and want more, consider joining us for the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program. Registration for our September program opens in April and space is limited. You can learn more at culinarynutrition.com forward slash program. And if you're brand new to the Today's Day podcast, once again, be sure to check out season one and season two. There is loads of information packed into those shows. Knowledge is important, but applying it is where the power is. As I always say, the best way to get started is to get started. Take what you've learned and start applying it in your life. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share it with your friends, especially if you want to go to parties with them and you don't want them serving you sugar. We look forward to connecting with you again next time.